As you know, two weeks ago, he spoke on the issue of wokeness, which has been a uh, kind of a, uh, a worldview that has uh, in, captured uh, a generation of not just um, people in our culture, but evangelicals have kind of hooked their caboose up to this and, and wanted to, to follow it without a lot of forethought or understanding. And uh, I, I apologize because you had about 40 minutes to do a lot, uh, which you're, maybe you should say that is a distilled version of something that's coming out in July? Yeah, thank you. Uh, if you felt like that was a, a fairly quick tour of wokeness and response to it, you are correct. The book that I'm drawing from in the lecture two weeks ago comes out in July. It's called Christianity and Wokeness, and it's on Amazon and Christian book distributors and all that. So if you want a fuller treatment, this is a subject that needs a fuller treatment. It's not, I don't regret doing a 40, 45 minute equipping session. I'm so thankful that you and Aaron and Myrell and others gave me that opportunity. Uh, praise God for a church that wants to help people think through ideologies that are trying to take people captive, Colossians 2.8. But this is a much bigger issue. So it, it really deserves and demands book-level treatment. So hopefully it can help folks. So get the book. Um, in order to bring people up to speed, I'm going to throw some terms around. And I'm going to ask for uh, some of you are too young to remember Cliff's Notes. Cliff's Notes is where they took a book this big and put it into about five pages. But the Cliff Notes kind of layman's understanding, I'm going to throw some things out. CRT, critical race theory, we hear that, at, let's just make sure we have our, our vocabulary kind of in the same, uh, on the same sheet of paper. What is CRT, critical race theory? Critical race theory is basically the ideology that tries to make sense of the racial power dynamics that are in play in this country and others, and then correct them. So critical race theory is, is not originally developed for theology or religion or politics. It's originally derived out of legal studies. And basically, if you apply critical race theory, you understand the world in terms of oppressor and oppressed, and you see that in racial terms. So there's a there's actually an ideology before CRT called just critical theory. Critical theory picks up off of Marxism, which, as I said a couple weeks ago, is, is really where you get that oppressor-oppressed division. That's all the world divided in economic terms for Marx. Critical theory comes behind and says, ah, that's very interesting. The world isn't just divided up into oppressor-oppressed in economic terms. It's divided up along those lines culturally. That's where you get critical theory. And then legal scholars in the 1980s apply that same view to race. And so it's that application of the oppressor-oppressed dynamic that originally obtains for Marx applied to issues of race. So one of the things I, I was going to ask similarly is cultural Marxism and its relationship to these kind of uh, acorn ideas. Just said it kind of briefly, but yeah, basically... Marxism's, Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto argue that you're either an oppressor or an oppressed, and basically rich people, by virtue of having wealth, are oppressors. That's basically the argument they make. And everybody else, or at least those who aren't rich or own the means of production, are oppressed peoples. That's part of, everyone says, why did socialism catch on? Why did Marxism catch on? Why did communism catch on? Well, there are abuses of power in the world, right? 
And that's an ideology, furthermore, that appeals to us at an instinctual level. For me to see myself as oppressed by people who have authority, that, that's an idea that will play. That's an idea that will get an audience because people, there, there is some oppression in the world, of course, and then it's also just an ideology that appeals to us. So this ideology of critical race theory takes that same dynamic and applies it to race. And it teaches people that if they are a person of color, uh, then they are fundamentally oppressed. And in this country, white people are the oppressors. So again, it, it appeals to people because it picks up on our natural desire to have somebody to overcome. And it traffics in, as I talked about briefly a couple weeks ago, real oppression that this country has caused for certain people, including some people of color. So it takes something that is real and then it extends it from there. Related, intersectionality, which is a big word with some really simple um, connective tissue, can I say it that way? Uh, um, yeah. Overlaps. What is intersectionality? Intersectionality is the idea that there's not just one group of oppressed people. Actually, there's all these different power dynamics throughout society. So, for example, uh, a father and mother having authority over a child that can very easily be seen as an oppressor-oppressed dynamic. Uh, this even goes into issues of weight. Uh, so I'm not making this up and I'm not trying to be impolite, but uh, fat people are fundamentally oppressed by thin people because they have uh, cultural advantages that, that the society is set up for thin or thinner people, and so fat people are fundamentally an oppressed dynamic. Intersectionality looks at these different groups that don't have power and it says, all of you guys your interests intersect. So that's where you get the term intersectionality. So oppressed peoples can unite across these different groups and camps and then seek to overcome the white heteronormative capitalist patriarchal majority culture that is reigning in our society. It's multiple victimhood. Multiple your, victimhood. Now, saying all that, um, I'm going to, I know your heart, I know your pastoral uh, leaning. You are in no way saying that there are not people in our societies that are, that are oppressed, that are disenfranchised, that right. are, that are um, uh, di disavowed with, uh, with opportunity, with, uh, with privilege, right? I mean, there are people who are, who are under the gun, so to speak. Yes. I want to frame that all carefully, and I want to choose my terms carefully with privilege and other things, structural, systemic racism. We can talk more That's, about that. That was my next question, okay. systemic. I'll, I'll hold off on that to the next yeah. question. But yes, if you look at slavery, if you look at Jim Crow, if you look at segregation, if you look at uh, these and other historical examples of partiality, partiality being one group uh, showing favoritism uh, to itself or others, and then creating an actual dynamic where some people are oppressed. We see that in the book of James. This isn't something you preached about this months, months ago. The idea that human beings are, are partial against one another, that they, they do treat some better than others, basically. It's partiality in a nutshell. Is, does not owe to 1980s legal theorists uh, of whatever background. It's an ancient idea. It's found in the New Testament in James 2. It's found all throughout the scripture. It's an idea that we know is ultimately caused by human sinfulness, by depravity or human sinfulness. And so, um, so that's where this all roots. So we, we look at American history, for example, Western history, and we see real examples of failings. 
and they grieve us. They genuinely, we want to learn from them. But here's the deal. Wokeness as a system, and that's the broader system, that's not just people who cite CRT chapter and verse, but wokeness is the broader movement that's hard to pin down, but everywhere advancing. Wokeness looks at real problems, real failings, and it says, we can explain this system. It's because of systemic racism. Talk about that in a minute. But we can explain this. As Christians, we need to say, we see real failings too. We see the same problems. We're not wiping the table. Furthermore, we know that people are going to continue to be partial in different ways going forward. But the solution is not social justice. It's not leftist, godless ideology. The solution is biblical justice. We don't, just because our culture talks about concepts that sound good and even our our biblical terms, justice, love, unity, peace, just because our culture uses those words does not mean it has the same system we have. We don't have this, we, we talk, sorry, I'm going on here, but real quick. I wrote 250 pages on this, so sorry. Uh, <laughs> this, is da- this is dangerous when you ask an author to talk. I, I, I'm asking an author okay. to talk. All right, I'll, 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 I'll try to make this quick here. Let's, let's land this plane. Uh, our culture talks about love, but cultural love is really affirmation. It's just affirming people however they want to live, basically. That's how people understand love today. You don't love me, people say to us. What do they mean? They mean you don't affirm my sin. We have a different doctrine of love. We use the same term. We recognize limited points of contact or overlap, yes. But we have a different understanding of love in the same way that we have a different understanding of justice or unity or oneness or truth. So we have to mark that So off. Micah 8 says, do justice, have mercy, walk humbly with your God. Right. Distinguish that from a... Um, um, social justice, a cultural justice that's being called for today? Biblical justice at core is basically retribution, or you could use a different term, restitution. So biblical justice occurs in a fallen world because there are wrongs that people do to one another, and those wrongs must be righted. Uh, if, I, if I take that nice shiny iPad from you, then... Um, yeah, you should, that is nice, um, then, then I should make restitution to you. I should give you back the iPad, okay? But that, that, so that's fundamentally how we understand biblical justice. Retribution, I have consequences for taking your iPad. There's, you know, I'm going to get called into the principal's office back here, and then I'm going to have to make restitution to you. But um, social justice says, actually, everybody deserves an iPad, I deserve an iPad. I have the right to have an iPad. If, if somebody has wealth, I should have wealth. So a way to talk about this is biblical justice is for equality of opportunity. There shouldn't be any barriers on anybody in society. They shouldn't say, guys under 5'8 can't be pastors. Okay, that's unfair. That's unrighteous. We would be in, we would be in trouble. I'm okay with that. Um, That's equality of opportunity. There's no barriers. But equality of outcome is what social justice is after. It's what leftism is after. It's what democratic political uh, policies are after in in large part. And and that tries to guarantee that everybody has the same life, the same earning, the same outcome. And no one can guarantee that. You can't do that. You can't engineer a society like that. But wokeness, 
socialism, leftism tries to make that happen. So wokeism, there, there's, when this term started getting thrown around five, six years ago, especially at major conferences, mm-hmm. um, there was a, a, a sense very quickly there is a, um, a, an appropriated use of that term, probably illegitimately, and a, a, a legitimate academic understanding of that term. Some believers, some pastors, some leading theologians wanted to say, by saying I'm woke, wanted to say I understand your I feel your situation. pain. I feel your pain. Yeah. And unwittingly, I think, we're sucked into this vortex of this bigger thing. Distinguish then um, sympathetic wokeness hmm. and real, what's happening in, a, in the headlines, independent of, uh, of Christianity, and then where the Christians are kind of drinking that, that, that Kool-Aid, that toxic mix. That's, that's good. That's a good distinction. Um, the way I parse it out in my book, In Christianity and Wokeness, is this. I think there are four categories in evangelicalism. So now we're moving from society to our movement, as you did. Um, There's the unwoke. So there's a lot to say there about their ideas. We're trying to make those clear. And then I think the second group, category two, are the confused. There's all sorts of people who are just profoundly confused by what is going on. They, They log into social media. Someone's being accused of a racist Uh, who's not known for that, and they're confused by it. Uh, There are public events, there are police shootings or something, and they think, oh, that's terrible, so so I should be with all the people who are saying that's terrible. I should march with those who say that's terrible. But they're they're generally confused. I think that's most people. Then there are the engaged. These are people one step up, category three. These are people who, they're buying into woke ideas. They're what you just called sympathetically woke. They are basically leaning on woke ideology to give them their vision of justice and unity and healing. And then there's category four, the committed. And those are the people who, as I talked about two weeks ago, are standing up in a pulpit. This has actually happened, a major evangelical pulpit that people here would know, and have called white people to repent for their complicity in white supremacy. And that is full woke And that is the group I most engage in my writing and speaking because that is the group that is being taken captive or has been taken captive. Category three is also in grave danger, but I'm trying to say not everybody is in the same precise place here. Some people put a black square on Instagram after George Floyd died and didn't really exactly know everything that they were communicating. Some people did know what they were communicating, excuse me, and some people are calling actively on white people to repent of their their whiteness. When I gave talks in Minnesota in October on this subject called Christianity and Wokeness, they're on YouTube, uh, I had a white uh, college student, a young woman, come up to me at the break, and she said, thank you for, uh, for these talks. I have been confused about all of this stuff And my Christian college, um, at it, I have heard numerous times that I'm complicit in white supremacy. And I I just appreciate you teaching me this morning that I'm not. I'm not guilty. And I said, you are not guilty. You are not condemned by this evil ideology. You and I are sinners. We are in need of forgiveness from Almighty God. We are damned for our sin eternally outside of the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So we have our own sin to deal with. And we could easily fall prey to partiality or racism or ethnocentrism. But you are not fundamentally convicted of white supremacy by virtue of having a certain level of pigmentation. You are not guilty. And that is, by and large, the major burden of my engagement of this issue. Yeah, so that's important. Not, not guilty maybe of generational uh, systemic racism, but definitely guilty right. in Romans 8 sense that you can be not condemned because of your belief in the gospel. There, right. there are two levels of guilt and condemnation there, right? We are, we are condemned outside of Christ, in Adam, in our sin. But once we are justified by faith in Christ, once God gives us justifying faith in Christ, we can still sin, but we cannot have the status of condemned any longer. We cannot be condemned in God's courtroom and God's law. So you have friends who are woke. Um, how do you care for them? How do you love them? How do you shepherd, correct, um, interact with them without losing the friendship and losing the war, but having a battle that's going to help both of you grow? I think you try to understand where they're coming from. You try to get a sense for what motivates their stance on the issue. Why have they come to this position? So you want to be quick to listen uh, in conversation, in dialogue. You want to hear. You want to know genuinely why they are where they are. That, that's true, by the way, not just on this issue. That's true whenever you're engaging somebody you fear is being taken captive or is sliding into ungodly ideology. So you want to you listen and hear, but then there's nothing fancy uh, to offer them. You, you want to minister the truth. You want to teach them and, and, sh- and, and proclaim to them the truths of the Christian faith, and, and you do so praying that you'll win them back uh, to the truth, not by your own strength, but by, by God's grace. So this, I mean, some of you may have experienced this. I, I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, in the, um, in the 60s and uh, right in the desegregation and uh, was bused uh, from 4th, 5th, 6th grade. Um, uh, that's not true. From, from uh, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th grade, I was bused from Woodmore Elementary over to Eastside, which was an all-black school. Half of them were, were bused over to the, my all-white school. And I, I don't know if some of you don't remember busing, but that's a real thing that I experienced for four years, three and a half years. Well, um, during that, uh, my best friend, un- unbeknownst to me, became a, a, a black friend named Leroy. Um, I'll never forget something that was, this was way before any of this was, was popular, and I'm, I'm in elementary school. Uh, we were going to ride our bikes across town, uh, four or five miles, meet in the middle, and go to this, um, this little uh, uh, model airplane store and go in. We got there, parked our bikes, and... Um, he said, well, I'm excited to go in here. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, I've, I can go in here now because I'm with you and you're white. Mm. But I couldn't otherwise. And that had a dramatic impact on me where, when I, where I'm going with this is there are real, mm. I mean, there are certain parts. I, I have a, 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 a black friend who has a son, you know this guy, who is very concerned because if his son gets pulled over in the Metroplex where they live, He's probably going to be treated differently, generally, than my son would be because of the color of his sin. These things are real. How does a Christian navigate that without giving into wokeness but being compassionate to, we do live in a racially charged society. 
Yeah, I think we have two things to say. We say that we know that partiality is going to be a problem. It's real. Until Jesus makes all things right. So, and, and just before you go on, partiality meaning racism, sexism, mm-hmm. overweightism, xenophobia. I mean, th- there yeah. are a thousand expressions of partiality, which is the core, as James says, that's the core sin. Racism is just one branch on that tree. Right. Right. So our society has basically embraced a utopian vision of justice, where it teaches that if we'll all just get on the same page and embrace social justice, then we will eradicate racism. We should take any step we can in tangible terms to fight sin of any kind. But we can't fall prey to utopian justice because humanity is going to sin uh, as long as, uh, as, as this world is not made right. So we want to make very clear that we understand that sins of, of racism, let's use that term, occur now. Yeah. It's not just that they used to occur. They occur now and they will occur and they should be, they should be fought. But fundamentally, we want to be really careful about uh, embracing any worldly ideology or any framing of these matters from a secular standpoint. There's a lot to say. Th- these are very complex issues, but you think about police shootings, for example. Police shootings have been portrayed as a campaign of largely white police terrorism against black people. We should all recognize that police officers can be racist, Mm -hmm. and beyond racism can make errors of judgment, can do the wrong thing, these sorts of things. But fundamentally, when you look at stats, actually a police officer is 18 times more likely to be killed than a black man by a police officer. So there, there's real data that has to be worked through on these issues. We're told oftentimes that America is systemically unjust against people of color. And there's stats there as well that need to be thought through and handled and studied, not just tweeted as a hashtag or something, but you need to think through them. But when you look into actual data, the narrative gets a lot more complicated. And that's part of why you start to see, oh, wait, there's an ideology driving this. This is a read. This is a skewed interpretation of these matters. So, for example, white adult men who are supposedly atop the white supremacist order of America are the most likely to commit suicide. What, what, why cite that? Because that is a, a data point that destabilizes the idea that this whole order is only benefiting one group. Um, we need to be really careful with claims of white supremacy because when you look at actual stats and societal trends, there's a good deal more complexity there than it may seem. Further, the very concept of systemic racism is huge and it's not usually unpacked. When you're dealing with Jim Crow law or slavery, you have a clear example of systemic wickedness. When you try to pin down with folks who are woke today what what is driving systemic injustice or systemic racism or whatever the term may be used, you won't usually get a lot of specificity. You'll get a general sense that it's occurring and it's everywhere. But if it's everywhere, then it's nowhere. So it needs to, again, be pinpointed very precisely. When you look, though, at a lot of the data, you'll find that there's not really a monocausal explanation. There's usually a great deal more complexity in the mix. So how should someone who is personally experiencing the sin of partiality respond to injustice? 
You know, I, I will say this. Um, I have experienced the sin of partiality. Uh, I joked about my height earlier, but it was pretty painful growing up being short and being wronged for that. I'm not a quick... I can't imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> Are you laughing with me or at me? Uh, I'm not equating that with other people's experiences, sure. but I'm just saying... This is a fallen world. It's a cold world out there. And people are cruel. So I would say I experienced a good deal of mockery for being short, which, by the way, I had no hand in. Okay? I did not choose that. Like, if I could have chosen, you know, the archetype, that would not have been... I, I prayed. I remember praying in junior high and high school. This was on the prayer list regularly to get taller. And I did get taller, but I did not hit the height. No, this was all revisited with I me hoped. when I baptized Stratos last week. I'm yeah. thinking, I, I've, the, the ship has sailed on my growth spurt. It's gone. So. I, think, I think it's a little too late for, for you and for me. Did I experience short injustice? Did I experience systemic short injustice throughout my life? Is there a system of oppression of short people? Maybe. That would be a hard claim to substantiate, I'm guessing, in policy terms. There's not laws on the book in Kansas or Missouri that say short people can't do this or that. But I did experience real partiality, real wickedness, real, real evil against me, cruelty. So what I would say to somebody who experiences this is don't be taken in by wokeness. Don't let wokeness drive your interpretation of what just happened. Let scripture drive your handling of this and know that the human heart is desperately wicked. Um, you have been wronged. I grieve that you have been wronged. Thankfully, this society does not have laws on the books that supports that kind of wrongdoing, but people will still sin. I'm here with you. The Christian gospel condemns that sin. But even if you are victimized, you and I are still sinners in need of the grace of Almighty God. And you are not fundamentally, therefore, fundamentally in God's sight, a victim. You and I in our sin are fundamentally criminals. We have committed untold depths of sin against God. And we need the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So I'm over here as a Christian. I'm wanting the society to only work more and more toward justice but even if we hit those benchmarks, you and I need Christ, and that's our greatest need. It's very interesting. Some of you may remember five, six years ago when the Supreme Court um, uh, okayed gay marriage. I preached a sermon on that and was given quite a bit of pushback, not so much from us, but there are other people outside of our church who listen to these sermons sometimes, because my, my point was our message to homosexuals is not don't get married. Because if they don't, if I can keep them from getting married, but they do go to hell, I, I've really not won anything. My message is, if you will understand the gospel, then that sets all of these other things in right. motion. Similar to what you just said, that it's finding the real problem and the real solution in the muddiness, the, the sloppiness of wokeness. Um, in evangelicalism, I think that what grieves me most is the confusion about True problem and true solution. Mm -hmm. And you alluded to that last, last uh, two weeks ago on page two, by the way. You're moving pretty fast. Yeah. Um, interesting story in the New Testament of a man who had a slave. Remember the story of Philemon? Philemon goes AWOL, 
Um, Paul writes to, to say, look, if, if he's done anything wrong, I will, or the slave, when I will, uh, Onesimus, and I will cover his expenses. And that's, some have used that as an equation for reparations in previous generations. Kind of clear that up. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of one of those complex matters that uh, you got you to gotta dig to understand a little bit. But when you do, I think it becomes pretty clear that Paul isn't calling for reparations. No. He, he is instead calling for genuine restitution. Completely different concepts, reparation and restitution. Yes. So with restitution, again, I take your iPad, you take my, my Bible. We, we, need to, we need to make that right because some, we have been wronged. Um, with reparations, there's not, necessar- there's not usually uh, a discrete act of injustice that has occurred. There's a general kind of vague sense that a people group has been wronged by another people group. Well, we can understand that people groups do that, but the question is, does the Bible set up a system where, for example, in the first century, uh, Jews who opposed Christian Gentiles and then the Jews become Christians would, would pay reparations to them for their past wrongdoing. And you have no such system anywhere in the New Testament or the Old Testament. You have no system of reparations. If somebody does something wrong in a discrete, clear, definable way, then there's retribution and as much as possible restitution. There's, there's vengeance upon the evildoer, retribution, and there's repayment for what has actually occurred. But that's different, than, um, that's different than a system of reparations. If anybody, I said this quickly, but if anybody should have paid reparations, it was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is a single-handed defeater of the idea of reparations grounded in the, in the Bible. Again, I'll make the point again. The Apostle Paul terrorized the church. So, if biblical reparations are in view, when Paul comes to faith, he should, he should somehow marshal payment, come up with payment to these, these genuine believers that he wronged and persecuted and helped kill. He does none of that. Instead, in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, the clearest place where he deals with these sorts of ideas, I think, he makes clear that the hostility between Jew and Gentile who have come to faith has ceased. So there's no standing grievance between the peoples. There could be. There's real issues in their pasts, but instead they're one new man in Christ. But this goes to even Zacchaeus who said, if I've wronged anyone, I'll pay them up to three times. That was a personal conviction he had that was anecdotal, not, right. not, not epistolary. We're not told to do that. But he wasn't saying, if my grandfather uh, somehow wronged the Edomites, right. I'm going to go pay the Edomites. This was a personal, it wasn't a reparation, this was a restitution because he had personally cheated people. So there's a difference between personal accountability and responsibility, correct, and generational. Very well said. And in Exodus 18, 19, you have sin affecting uh, a family to the third or fourth generation, for example. So people will sometimes draw on that in their case for reparations from the Bible. Uh, but that's not what those, that's not what, what the, those chapters are talking about. Th- there are effects of our sins that will have generational consequences. Mm-hmm. If I destroyed my family 
this coming week, if I ruined my marriage, God forbid, there would be effects on my three children, and then there would likely be effects on resulting generations. But those generations are not in any form guilty for what I did. So let me change the the analogy. Um, German citizens, outside of Christianity, but according to the Bible, German citizens today in 2021 who are descended from Nazi camp commandants are in no sense guilty for what their Nazi ancestors did. There may be effects of Nazidom on their family, just in, in tragic ways, but a, an 18-year-old soccer player for Bayern Munich today, whose great-grandfather was a Nazi, is in no sense guilty of the Holocaust. Of the Holocaust. Not, not, even, not even a little. No guilt. Now, Unless there, he's still, well, if he's guilt, if he, if he is prejudicing his Jews, that's different than saying, I mean, that's a current situation, but he still right. didn't execute someone in, a, in Auschwitz. Right. He's, he's guilty for his own sin. Exactly. But he's not guilty for his grandfather's sin. Okay, so I want to land on, on, on so what. If we are concerned that the church can wrongfully adopt a cultural wokeness, what do you see as a path, I've read your book, by the way, what do you see as a path forward for Christian sensitivity to true injustices with the answer for those true injustices without buying the cultural ideology? We're fundamentally called to be humble as believers. We're called to uh, be slow to speak and slow to anger. So it took me a few years, actually, to really get my arms around this issue and then write on it. And I I actually didn't want to be quick to speak here Um, because these are complicated matters. So I think our posture is one of humility regarding our own sin and regarding the sin of the American past, for example, recognizing that in the church there were different major leaders and voices who fell into sin on these issues. They didn't fall into sin because they were too biblical. They fell into sin because they were too cultural. They went with the reigning ideology of the day, and they believed, for example, that white people were superior to black people, these sorts, or, or that, that it was okay to hold slaves based on uh, chattel slavery, that system. So that was wrong. So we, we want to be upfront about that. In my book, I have numerous pages where I grapple with American history and try to show this. But then, so that's our first thing, I think. Humility, a posture of humility that shows that we're a, we of all people understand why there is sin in the American past, the church's past, and our past, and our present. We understand why there's sin. Uh, secondly, we need an absolute dogged refusal to be taken captive by any ungodly ideology. And so we need to understand that everybody who says the terms unity, justice, truth, equity, love is not playing with the same die. There are different systems at play. Same words, different dictionaries. Same words, different dictionaries. Same words, different systems. And too few Christians think in terms of systems 
But Scripture commands us to do so. Scripture compels us not to be taken captive by ideology, but 2 Corinthians 10.5, mm-hmm. to take every thought captive. So we need to make very clear in our approach on this issue, our, our engagement of classmates at college or high school, our posting on social media, our, our discussions with family members, that this is a godless ideology, that it is grounded in uh, atheism, actually, if you go back to Marx, that the oppressor-oppressed dynamic is not fundamentally the way to see humanity, that white people are not guilty of white supremacy based on having white skin. In actual fact, there is no such thing as whiteness. There is different pigmentation level, but we are not different species of humanity based on skin color. We are one human race. We are of one blood, Acts 17, Which doesn't deny that there are white supremacists who believe that sure. they are Aryan they're, they're because of their, their, their pigmentation. They are superior. Right. And that's what's so dangerous about wokeness, actually. In calling everybody who's white a white supremacist, it downplays the real danger of white supremacy, which is a real danger. Um, the Ku Klux Klan is so evil. Yeah. But if you're, if you're telling somebody who just happens to have white skin and is not a racist and is not burning crosses in anybody's yard that they are a white supremacist, you are actually, you're, you're actually impeding the work of opposing genuine white supremacy, which must be opposed without fail. So we, we want to altogether oppose this system that, that is taking people captive and that is corrupting true justice and love and equity. So, kind of final question. How do we engage the Second um, Corinthians 10, the, um, you know, the, the worldview that, the, the, that needs to be taken captive in our own hearts and minds, fighting the right battle without being drawn and sucked into this vacuum of my idea versus your idea? What, what's, what, is, what, what is the sword in our sheath that the Lord has called us to do rather than just to be culturally tight in our arguments? Uh, well, I, I want Christians to know and have confidence in the fact that we have a transformed mind, mm-hmm. that we have, we have a renewed mind, and that day by day, Romans 12, 1 and 2, we're called to pursue conformity, ever-increasing conformity, not to the world, but to the Word of God. So we need to make clear in all these conversations that ultimately this isn't a death match over an ideology. If I'm talking to somebody who is woke, I'm not trying to get them to not be woke, and then I walk away Uh, you know, cool guys don't look at explosions or something like this. You know, I walk away and like, you know, make a weird like symbol like that or something. This wasn't in my notes, okay? This isn't in the book. I don't really know what I'm saying right now. But I, it's not, what I'm trying to say is it's not about winning the argument. That's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is not to, to have somebody opposite you quiet with no arguments left to say about wokeness. The, the goal is absolutely to destroy, destroy strongholds in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. So that is a biblical calling of the Christian. The Christian actually is supposed to think about Marxism, nihilism, existentialism, postmodernism, wokeness, 
I think we are. Mm -hmm. I think we need to know these systems. I think fathers and mothers need to train their children in these things. I think Christian schools need to educate their students in these things. I think churches need to do what this church has done, praise God, and educate their people in these things so that they're not taken captive and so that these strongholds are destroyed. Paul does not say, treat these ideologies with kid gloves. Paul says, we destroy strongholds. And he's talking about systems of thought that take people captive. So we don't want people to be taken captive, but that's not, that's not all we're trying to do. We're trying to communicate the gospel. We're trying to live out the fruits of the Spirit. We pray ultimately for Christians that they won't, they won't keep going this way. And we pray ultimately for unbelievers who are buying the, uh, these ideas that they will be one to Jesus Christ because their true problem yeah, that, I was picking that up from, uh, from the last couple of chapters in your book where basically you say the uh, knowledge of these systems is important, but our, the way we fight them is not with a better system, it's with the gospel, which is the better system. Right. It's understanding true guilt, true redemption, true salvation. Yes. This world, I mean, it's, it is interesting, uh, uh, you know, I, you, most of the church knows that the pastors go over to Malawi. Uh, quite often we have Moses who's from Malawi. When I'm there, I'm a major minority. I mean, people look at me like it's, I'm the only, I'm the only white guy for, for miles. Um, I know what that feels like uh, to be in, in the minority, but the solution is not have everybody like me. The solution is to think biblically, to think rightly, to think rightly about anxiety, to think rightly about injustice, to think rightly about uh, the future and the worldview, and to remember that evil men will proceed from bad to worse, right? Mm. We're, we're not going to fix, I mean, I, I know this, we're, we're, neither of us are post-millennialists. We're going to get the world better so that Jesus can finally come back. Uh, this is going to get worse. So um, mm. I like the fact that in, in the last, you have a Q&A section, final questions, and basically it's you, you control what you can in your sphere. You, you're these are probably not going to be presidents of the United States, maybe, or governors. So what they do is to think rightly, critically, and gospel-centered in their families and on their Facebook pages. And that, that's huge because, just as we wrap up, I know, um, wokeness puts us in a state of anxiety, and it makes us feel like everybody's at each other's throats, and, and everybody impossibly hates each other. And even in common grace American terms, I don't buy that. I think actually a lot of people in neighborhoods around here uh, of different skin colors, a lot of cases are basically peaceable and fine with each other. But wokeness wants to put us in a state of anxiety about the whole world, and it tells us, solve the world's problems now, tweet this now, fix this now, join this movement now. And what I would say as we conclude is simply this, be a Christian where you are. Be, be a godly man or woman, boy or girl, where you are. Treat other people, whether they're Christian or not, as if they are an image bearer. If there is injustice at your workplace or your school, fight it. Uh, preach the gospel as much as you can. Proclaim Christ as much as you can. Love people lavishly and for no reason based on their skin color or background or anything. Be part of a church of the Lord Jesus Christ where we don't have everything in common. We do have different skin colors. We do have different economic levels, class levels, education levels. On and on it goes. And yet, what are we here at this church? We are a body. What wokeness says cannot happen is happening here. We are a body. We are united by the blood of Jesus Christ. And wokeness tells us we must be divided. But the blood of Jesus Christ speaks a better word. Amen.
Well, I would encourage you to pre-order this book. It will uh, give you clarity, and uh, it'll be a Bible study and a cultural study wrapped up in one, and you will be all the better for it. Let me pray.